on this earth, which we haven't discovered yet, it's called planet ocean, where more than two thirds of the earth's surface is ocean, 99% of the living space is the ocean when you consider the three dimensional nature of this planet. And we're the land apes stuck with our land based myopia. We already have an atmosphere. We need to discover the ocean and use it to solve these grand global challenges because it already is if we just work with it. But if we can put seasteads out there, grow coral reefs on our seasteads, we increase the amount of life on the ocean, we absorb carbonic acid from the ocean, lowering the acidity of the ocean, which gives the ocean more power to uh, absorb uh, CO2 from the atmosphere. The more we scale this up, the better it is for the Earth. Meanwhile, New Orleans could start floating uh, if we push forward these technologies. Welcome to the Blue Economy Primer, a New Orleans-based podcast where you learn from the experts, the practical tools and solution sets that will empower your community to adapt and thrive in a new blue era of rising seas and economic discontinuity. Special thanks to the Dan Lucas Memorial Foundation and the Pontchartrain Conservancy for their financial and institutional support of Deep Blue Academy's education and research initiatives. Our guest today is our old friend and colleague, Joe Cork, sea evangelist and a key leader in the global seasteading movement. Joe, would you like to introduce yourself to our audience, please? I am Joe Quirk, president of the Seasteading Institute, and we are currently building the first Seastead. Great. Well, I really want to thank you for being one of our first guests on the podcast uh, as somebody coming from uh, clean and green technology and policy and all that. It was really you and the Seasteading Institute that, that introduced me to the importance of the blue economy and ocean-based technology and all that. So... I really appreciate that. That's how, that you're part of the reason how I got to where I am right now. It's very gratifying to hear because the purpose of the nonprofit is to inspire aquapreneurs like you to do all the real work. Great. Well, thanks. So, first of all, what does the blue economy mean to you? The blue economy requires a complete paradigm shift that is difficult to explain to people whose brains are on land and think in terms of land solutions. So right now, the Seasteading Institute is trying to build the first floating home that is much better than sustainable. It's a complete paradigm shift from sustainability. It's an eco-restorative home. So every floating home you build increases the amount of life on the ocean increases the amount of coral ecosystems. And if you can, two-thirds of this earth, if we can start living on that, every home we build will be better for the environment. It's not about sustaining the situation we have now. It's about improving the situation we have with our own lifestyles. So how did you become interested in seasteading and these ocean-based technologies that you're now promoting? Well, I could tell the Burning Man story, or I could tell the cruise ship story, and I suppose I'll tell both because they happened six weeks apart. Um, my mom's mom died. She inherited some money, and she decided to spend it on all of us going on a cruise together. And once I was on the cruise, I realized this is the best standard of living I've ever had in my entire life. 
there's ice sculptures, there's uh, marble countertops, there's every time I drop something, a butler runs up and replaces it for me. If I dab my face with a towel, somebody swoops in and replaces my towel. And I'm saying, why am I living like a, a rich mogul? Um, and why is it cheaper than the coastal hotel I stayed in the night before? This is literally a floating city. Um, and all the people who worked there uh, happened to be from Thailand, and they seemed to be sharing my sense of adventure. Like, I got to live like a, a rich person in the West, and they got to live like a, a middle-class servant in the West. And so both of our lives were getting better. Um, and instead of enjoying myself or fighting with my family, I was walking around doing back-of-the-napkin calculations, saying, like, wait a second, how much does that cost? And so I'm paying this much. How many people are on this thing? So that would come out to about this. How many billions did it cost to build this thing? And I'm like, I don't get it. How, how does this make a profit? I don't understand. And I think I saw that the flag was a Panama flag. And I thought, well, it left from the US. It's going to Alaska. It's flagged in Panama. It must be some kind of tax play or something. I don't get it. So I forgot about it. Six weeks later, I was at my 10th Burning Man. Um, and as you know, Greg, when you go to Burning Man 10 times in a row, you start to become fascinated with how problems get solved in miraculous ways. So one year I was there, they had a huge problem with dust. When you're driving your car past people's homes, you raise dust and it gets all over other people's campsites. And how are you going to convince, you know, 30,000 people to, to drive below five miles an hour? Uh, Burning Man shut down. The next year, everyone's driving below five miles an hour. I don't know how they convinced everybody to do that. But now there's a new problem. This danger, Burning Man is going to shut down because people have thrown cans and, and things into the porta potties. And no toilets, no Burning Man. If we don't solve that problem, it's like, oh my God, how are you going to convince 50,000 this year to all spontaneously follow the rules? I don't know. So I noticed it's like it was like a self governing society in the middle of a, a desert that every year shut down. People thought about how to solve problems and that it was a startup society next year. Uh, and instead of arguing about how problems could be solved, Somehow from the bottom up, they were getting solved. From what I could determine is it's because they start society over every year, having learned what they did last time, and they're not stuck with the previous system. And I don't have to argue with politicians. I don't have to divide into new parties. So I was uh, talking, as I am wont to do, and I said, wouldn't it be fascinating if we could have tens of thousands of Burning Mans all over the world? all starting up new societies, um, discovering interesting ways of solving problems. Um, and, you know, somebody said, like, it sounds like you'd be interested in seasteading. And I was like, seasteading, what's that? And it was described to me. And I heard about this nonprofit that's working on creating floating cities on the ocean. And I said, well, that's interesting. Um, I, since I've just been on a cruise ship, I think it's completely believable that humanity will move in that direction and we could have floating cities. Why the heck would somebody found a nonprofit to make that 
happier, make that happen earlier than it would otherwise. I don't get it. So sometime after that, I noticed the Burning Man logo. The Seasteading logo was based on the Burning Man logo. And I said, well, that's really weird. What does a society at sea have to do with a society in the desert? I'm going to go look this up. Um, and that's when I discovered most of the ocean is unclaimed by any country. If you had a city floating out there permanently, it'd be a startup society. Um, and what really changed my life is um, I had just written a book about evolution. I came to understand that the secret recipe for progress is not arguing and forcing other people to do what you want. It's um, variation and selection. So if you vary things like uh, camera lenses and people can select them, we end up with this conversation we're having face-to-face -face from opposite sides of the country. Nobody knows how to do it from the bottom up, from the top down, but the world knows how to do it from the bottom up. It gets discovered. Um, we can't do that with governments, obviously, because varying them requires a revolution or a war, and selecting them requires winning the revolution of the war. It's not worth the cost, so let's just fight inside the monopoly we have. When it was described to me that startup societies floating on the ocean would be like a Venice where you could move the city blocks around. Um, wow, that would be like a cruise ship. The play on cruise ships is that they're essentially de facto self-governing. Now, what if they stayed out on the sea? What if they were affordable and you could move these city blocks around? You would have variation in governance service provider and selection by residents. And that, in principle, would unleash evolution in the service of governance itself. I've waited 11 years for someone to t explain to me why I'm so wrong about this, and it still hasn't happened. I think it's completely doable to build floating societies on the ocean, especially near the equator where um, waves are very low. And we could start uh, solving, discovering solutions for how to govern ourselves um, peacefully on the seas that would set examples for people on land. Um, and we wouldn't have to fight the ones that fail. Those people go bankrupt. The ones that succeed, they make a profit. Other people steal that idea and try their ideas. Diverse people try different things. Uh, strange misfits in your country would leave and maybe try them on seasteads like the misfits in Europe fled to the new world and tried wacky, crazy ideas like democracy and constitutional republics, which lo and behold worked, which nobody predicted, but ended up changing the world. And so I think the blue frontier could be like uh, the frontier in North America, where we discover interesting new ways of getting along. And this time we can do it peacefully without war. So once you're infected with this idea and you start meeting all the aquapreneurs interested in solving humanity's grand challenges on the sea, you start to learn, oh, uh, ocean crops don't require fresh water. They don't require soil. They're more uh, healthy than corn, wheat, or soy, which our economies are based on. Uh, fish are healthier 
than uh, cows that don't eat grass. Um, we could all the we could have vast seaweed farms on the ocean that absorb carbonic acid from the ocean, which would deacidify the ocean and help mitigate climate change, or at least mitigate the amount of uh, carbon we have in the ocean and the air in different forms. And it's like once you go down the rabbit hole, there's one innovator after another, all moving towards seasteading as a problem to as a solution to problems you and I care about. Uh, to say nothing of what we could do in New Orleans, potentially with the solutions to sea level rise, uh, land reclamation is, is, is uh, really bad for the undersea environment, and it could rapidly get much cheaper and practical to float societies, float islands. It goes on and on. So there's no question... You and the Seasteading Institute are leaders in the blue economy and the blue frontier. You're also a New York Times bestselling author and wrote a book about this. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Thank you for bringing that up. Um, the the Seasteading book was an Amazon bestseller, um, not a New York Times bestseller. But you are a New York Times um, bestselling author. Yes. I've, I've, uh, I've actually technically had four different kinds of bestsellers in four different categories. Um, and the, the Seasteading book is its own unique category, and it was initially a bestseller on Amazon. And so the service I thought I could provide is I write novels, I write um, science books, and my role in the world appears to be I listen to experts I slowly understand what they're saying. Um, and then I think about how would this be explained for normal people? And I realized the big problem with seasteading is the aqua culturalists didn't understand the marine engineers and the marine engineers didn't understand the business people. And they all use different kinds of technical language. They each thought they were the one that were gonna solve the problem. The business people say, this is a business problem. You come out with a profitable reason to do this you'll solve the problem. The engineering people say it's an engineering problem. Once you can solve the engineering problem, it's, it's, it's done. Um, and, and it's like, it's that uh, analogy of the blind men all feeling the elephant. All the different experts were saying, oh, this is a tusk problem. This is a tail problem. This is an ear problem. And I was the guy saying, it's the whole elephant. We have to put this all together in one story and give the whole vision to the world because it's not going to happen unless we attract, as I used to say at the time, 10,000 more brains to this to start thinking about it. We need uh, international lawyers. We need uh, maritime attorneys. We need all different kinds of law. Um, and all those types of people are now volunteering to help us right now establish the Seastead Showcase uh, in Panama Waves. So we really have inspired people to get involved with the blue economy and to see it as a multifaceted solution to most of the challenges we argue about on land. So I know that part of what the Seasteading Institute ends up doing is being sort of an incubator or accelerator or platform for these new technologies. Could you talk about some of the key technologies in the book and other technologies that you see that are proven and ready to scale in the blue economy? Yeah, I mean, 
the book came out, I think, five years ago. And I was speaking of seasteading in terms of cities. What's so extraordinary is all the technologies, or most of the technologies I described in the book, are now being instantiated on a single family floating home. So our next step is to go to the high seas and, or at least go into high waves and show that it works. What's already been solved as of today is uh, environmentally restorative toilets and um, environmentally restorative homes that grow uh, coral ecosystems on them. Right now, the sea pod is floating in Panama the first uh, customers have paid to stay on it. And just yesterday, I sat on a, a public Q&A with the uh, CEO and the business development director at Ocean Builders as they uh, answered questions about how this thing works. And they took, as I like to joke, a deep dive on toilets. And they described in great detail about how the toilet works. So everyone's one of their first questions is always what you just poop in the sea and throw your waste into the sea no um if you care about the ocean you should stop pooping into your toilet in new orleans which runs off ultimately into the sea and creates dead zones and start pooping on seasteads which is uh, immediately through various fascinating techniques they describe better than i do converts all that into nutrients for your ocean crops and gets turned into water that's drinkable. Uh, not that anyone drinks it, but um, poop is a good thing. Plants like it. Like it. Um, this, you can get the whole circular ecosystem going on your home if you float. Um, so it's a complete paradigm shift just at that level. So seasteaders love talking about toilets. Um, because that's one of the key innovations that's going to change the world. So one of the things that I know you're familiar with is the relationship between seasteading and space exploration. NASA geographer Dr. Gene Feldman talks about how we, we have better maps of the surface of Mars and the moon than we do of the bottom of the ocean. Can you tell us a little bit about your interactions with, the, with space explorers? Uh, yes, that fact is outrageous. It's outrageous. We know so much about the surface of Mars. We know so little about the ocean floor. We imagine uh, intelligent life out in space. We're not exploring the intelligent life of like the uh, colossal squid with, with big brains that are deep in the ocean and, and manipulate the world. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. We actually have intelligent life deep in the ocean. We just don't know much about it. And the bigger it is, the more intelligent it is. Um, everyone dreams about going, maybe we can send a rocket, land it on an asteroid and mine the rare earth minerals, which our economy relies so much on. There are rare earth nodules sitting on the surface of the deep ocean floor. And there's already... Um, uh, companies working to find ways to go down there and explore and make a profit picking these things up. Now, when I go to space conferences, which is where I met Jeff Bezos himself, um, 
it's difficult to sell seasteading because I have to spend a lot of my time kind of tearing down their vision um, and explaining why the, why the oceans is better. I mean, for one thing, the solutions. So let's talk about Elon Musk. What is, the, what is the best reason to go to Mars, say? I think we have a pretty good reason that if an asteroid hits the Earth and wipes out human civilization, we have no backup plan. The chances of this happening in the next 10,000 years are very, very, very nil. The chances of much bigger disasters happening in the next 100 years here on Earth are much more likely and coming in multiple directions. And on this Earth, which we haven't discovered yet, it's called planet ocean, where more than two thirds of the Earth's surface is ocean, 99% of the living space is the ocean when you consider the three-dimensional nature of this planet. And we're the land apes stuck with our land-based myopia. We already have an atmosphere. It's not irradiated. It's already full of life. We need to discover the ocean and use it to solve these grand global challenges because it already is, if we just work with it. Um, the ocean absorbs most of the uh, carbon from the atmosphere and turns it into carbonic acid, which is very bad for the ocean. But if we can put seasteads out there, grow coral reefs on our seasteads, we increase the amount of life on the ocean, we absorb carbonic acid from the ocean, lowering the acidity of the ocean, which gives the ocean more power to uh, absorb uh, CO2 from the atmosphere. The more we scale this up, the better it is for the Earth. Um, meanwhile, uh, New Orleans could start floating uh, if we push forward these technologies. Um, you want uh, to move on from fossil fuels. I re recommend uh, each individual home has its own solar panels, its own wave energy generation technologies, its own ocean thermal energy conversion technologies. Um, we could move our land farms to the ocean give the land farms back to the songbirds. Um, we could uh, uh, start powering civilization with completely renewable technologies in small steps over time, one house at a time, where we don't have to make a grand decision from the top down as they're doing uh, in Germany, solve it on the ocean. So once you get me going, I can keep going. That's a few steps ahead. I just think one solar-powered floating home on the ocean will get things started. So why do you think people on the Gulf Coast and in southern Louisiana should be interested in seasteading? What do you think the potential is for these communities all over the world, but particularly in the United States and on the Gulf Coast? You know, when, I, when I've been in uh, Louisiana and I see those homes up on stilts, uh, in, to protect themselves against the next flood, I think, what if that home just floated? Um, you know, it, we already have these in the Netherlands. They're on like poles and they float up when the water comes in and they go back down and be on the land. So at a very small scale, you could start uh, floating people instead of building these very expensive dikes. Um, and the nutrient pollution that has been devastating to like the, the Gulf there where the Mississippi runs into the water, creating these tremendous dead zones. I mean, in the book, um, some aquapreneurs I interview talk about 
we could grow seaweed farms and absorb this stuff. What's amazing about the 10,000 species of edible algae, not counting the, all the algae that's not edible that can do things like separate impurities and heavy metals from water, and consider that all these uh, ocean crops, ocean plants have not undergone the selection pressure that uh, tomatoes and wheat and corn and soy have undergone to narrow them down to these environmentally destructive but efficient ways of feeding ourselves. Uh, biotechnologists have not applied themselves to, the, to um, algae at the scale they have for the food we eat. So converting the vast dead zones off the coast of Texas and in those oil fields there uh, into um, new ecosystems that are clean and bring back the fish and clean the waters is actually doable, at least according to the experts that got very interested in seasteading. Challenges, you have to kind of stay out there and develop and then run a business model. Um, but I, I think, so when we talk about this, it's, um, I'm, I'm sort of talking about long-term, decades ahead. If you want to talk immediately, I would just like to see uh, floating gardens in New Orleans, around the Gulf, as quickly as possible, get people living on them, uh, get low-income people working on them, tending the gardens. It, it's it's a it's a it's a blue school where kids could take class trips. That's what you and I were planning to do in French Polynesia, and we have to stop explaining it and start doing it and bring together the experts that are inspired by this vision. Yeah. So you and the Seasteading Institute are particularly aware of these proven technologies that are ready to scale. What do you see as either the obstacles or the opportunities for more rapid scaling of technologies that are fundamentally already proven? The only um, a challenge left is uh, poodles, poodles that bark while I'm doing an interview. <laughs> the only challenge left is misunderstanding. And, and people not getting it. So when I first got into this, I used to have a list of 12 challenges. You know, that, well, you gotta, you gotta bring the price point down, you have to deal with waves, you have to deal with energy. How are you gonna come up with a business plan? Well, all those problems have essentially been solved as far as I'm concerned. I hope we prove the point with the Seastead Showcase. Um, and at this point, it's the challenge is just a matter to get people thinking outside their land-based box and look at the solutions that the oceans provide. And people's natural instinct is, oh, if you're moving out onto the ocean, you're hurting the ocean. No, living on a coast and using your toilet hurts the ocean. Um, eating factory farmed animals hurts the ocean. If we start civilizing the ocean with environmentally restorative societies, we can actually help heal the ocean, and it'll be a key way that we start living in harmony with nature for real. So, in in the realm of these blue technologies and blue frontiers, is there the blue frontier? Is there something that you think is going to be happening in the next, let's say, five years that is going to really surprise people? That is going to be a manifestation of this new era. I think um, people in the next couple of years are gonna be amazed that they're gonna have waterfront property 360 degree view, which exists basically nowhere except on top of a mountain on an island. And then they're gonna go 10 meters down 
and look out their underwater window and realize I have a 360 degree underwater view. And right outside my window, there's coral growing on my seastead. Uh, talk about high status among my environmentalist friends. I mean, uh, off the coast of California, they, they uh, environmentalists um, compel the government to protect decommissioned oil rigs to preserve the life that's grown on it. Um, so I think when people see with their own eyes how rapidly life starts growing on floating things and that everything you build is good for you, I think that is going to blow people's minds. And then when you start thinking about, oh, uh, we can have various businesses out here. Maybe instead of staying at a coastal hotel, I want to go a few miles out and stay in that underwater floating hotel. Um, I, I'm just talking about the next couple of years. Once creative people start thinking about businesses they could run this way, using the blue frontier and all the treasures and riches it has, um, I think we're, we'll be off and running. And then everybody who's dissatisfied with society on land will be going out there trying to prove their point on a seastead. Well, I know that the Seasetting Institute is always thinking is also thinking about things like culture, and certainly down here in New Orleans and Southern Louisiana, the culture of food and entertainment and the arts is is really important. Can you talk a little bit about where the Seasetting Institute sees that cultural development going? And I know you've been doing some programs and podcasts and different things around that. Well, I I think of New Orleans. I visited it when I was 20, and it blew my mind right there, and it made me go home and start reading about how could this place exist, because there's nothing else like it in any city I've been into in the United States. And I found, as you well know, that it's basically a gumbo. It's this unique confluence of all these different weird cultures from around the world who all ended up in that port city, and you mix all that together, you know, I'm sure a lot of those groups didn't like each other. All of a sudden, you mix all that together and you've invented uniquely American music. You've invented a completely unique cuisine. I mean, <laughs> you know, and then I, I jump back a thousand years and think about Venice, which basically started the Renaissance, which was the same thing. A, a city grown in a swamp where people from all over the world came together who didn't like each other. But they all wanted to try something new in a new place. Next thing you know, there's a completely new culture that puts feudalism to an end and kicks off the Renaissance. Now, I want Venice's and New Orleans's all over the world. I want 10,000 of them. Uh, there's no way you could predict the culture of New Orleans. There's no way you could predict the innovations of Venice. It had to be tried by all these different groups and they had to work it out themselves. And if we can do it peacefully, I wanna proliferate as many of these as we can. I actually think New Orleans is, I actually can't think of a city that, that's a better uh, poster child for what the blue economy and seasteading can be. What's next? What's going on at the Seasteading Institute? What are, what are some companies that you're watching and some projects that you're working on? So I'm, I love talking about the grand ideas, but now the rubber hits the road or the skis hit the water. And we've got to talk about the next step. What are people working on right now? The people actually building the Seastead Showcase are ocean builders. They actually have a functioning business on the water. They are in Panama 
and they are talking to people in at least six different countries about shipping their technology to those countries. So that's very exciting. There is also uh, some companies with similar names. Arctide and Arcpad are both working on their own versions of floating homes that they want to start selling in the near future. And they're doing the let's build a community first that's floating close to land and then move the whole community out. Whereas Ocean Builders is just provide the technology for one home and other people will figure it out. Um, I think uh, uh, Michael Elliott with his company, um, now why is it the float house? Uh, the float house is uh, an environmentally restorative form of geopolymer concrete. Um, every cubic meat of Every cubic meter of, of uh, that kind of uh, geopolymer cement that you build to float in the ocean pulls that amount of carbon out of the environment. Um, and this is designed to last centuries at sea. So we have people interested in material science. We have people interested in community building. We have people interested in engineering. And we have people interested in maritime law, all actually investing their own money and trying to make these things happen. Um, so I would look at uh, Arctide, Arcpad, um, and Ocean Builders. And I'm probably forgetting a few, and I'm embarrassed. But yeah, check out those guys. Yes, and I want to ensure our listeners that in the comment section of the details of the podcast, we'll have links to all of this information and all of the interesting things that Joe, Joe talked about. Joe, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to make sure our listeners know about the, the work that, the, that you're doing and the Seasteading Institute's doing? Do a deep dive, or better yet, give it five minutes and see if you get captivated. Um, the thinking about living on the sea requires you to overthrow about 12 different paradigms you naturally apply to living on land. Uh, how does it, what about waves? What about pirates? What about waste? What about water? All these, uh, there are answers to all these questions. As a matter of fact, we made a video series called Tough Questions Answered. And we answer each of those questions in about two or three minutes, about 26 standard questions. Uh, and those two minutes, they're not glib because they have links to all the research backing what, up what we're saying. Uh, so you can take the deep dive. You may start getting hooked. Some people get hooked really quick. And if you really want to see the grand vision, you can check out my book called Seasteading. And if you really want to get involved, you can uh, help us at the Seasteading Institute. We rely totally on the generosity of volunteers, and we have dozens of them. And then uh, if you're interested in the for-profit company, look at Ocean Builders um, and take a look at what they've already built on the water. Fantastic. Well, I really thank you for your time, Joe. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. We'll make sure that we have all these links and references so people can follow up and reach out if they have any questions. And we'll look forward to seeing what's next on the Blue Frontier. I look forward to the new Blue Orleans. Great. That's a great idea for the future here. Thank you, Joe. Great to have you. Thank you for joining us for the Blue Economy Primer. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please hit the like button. And be sure to visit our website at www.deepblue.academy, 
where you can access important links and supporting information about today's podcast, send us your comments and or suggestions for potential guests and topics, get more information about our education and training programs, and join our mailing list, as well as make a much-appreciated tax-deductible donation to support our nonprofit education and research initiatives. Thanks again to the Dan Lucas Memorial Foundation and the Pontchartrain Conservancy for their critical financial and institutional support. Until next time, when we meet again on the ever-expanding horizons of the blue economy.